It's great to see all of you here today, and I hope you're glad to be here. And before we go to the Word today and continue our series on Aligned, I just want to make you aware of something so significant that's happening in our world today. Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl. I don't know, do you not? So, I wasn't sure if you all knew that or not. I just wanted to make sure that, that, oh, security, where, where, I'm just I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Jesus loves everybody. And so, um, anyway. <laughs> all right. No, I'm, I'm teasing. But, hey, I love Super Bowl week, you know, because the Chiefs and the, and the Niners are all going to be heading to Florida. And here's something you're going to see on the news a lot, you know, um, this week. All the players go through interviews every day. I mean, you're going to see a constant stream of player interviews. All of them have to do it. They can't get away from it. And you know, I kind of find it fascinating to just watch and listen to what these reporters ask because, I mean, how, I mean, really, the questions are all the same. They're just recycled. How many different ways can you ask kind of the same question? But sometimes you get some really dumb questions in there. I mean, these reporters are trying to get their question played on ESPN or to try to get the player to say something silly or something like that. But if you look through history... I mean, there's newsreels full of just dumb questions that athletes have been asked by reporters. And I find those fascinating. There will be some that will come up this week and they'll be funny. But I, I kind of think, you know, what are some of those really dumb questions that I've heard over the years of athletes in general? And I began to think through and I did a little internet search too, just like, and I was reminded of some stuff. I remember this one, Russell Westbrook is a superstar NBA player. And um, he was asked one time, um, yeah, this is the moment I'm going to tell you about. He was asked one time after a game, uh, his team had just lost, okay? They had lost to the Utah Jazz, okay, which is another NBA team. And the reporter confronts Russell at his locker, and he asks this question, hey, Russell, did you guys lose this game or did the Jazz win this one? I can't play you his response because it's not appropriate for a church, but let me just say... That he said, what? And then the rest, I'll leave to your imagination. All right, so there's another time. If you go back to Super Bowl 48, the Denver Broncos were playing that year. And the Broncos had a defensive end named um, Phillips, uh, or excuse me, Sean Phillips. And he was doing one of his pre-Super Bowl interviews, a pre-Super Bowl interview. And the reporter asked him, said, hey, Sean, do you consider this Super Bowl a must-win game? Sean thought about it for a minute. He goes, this is the exact answer. Um, yes. <laughs> That's his answer. <laughs> One more. This maybe might be my all-time favorite dumb question asked of an athlete by a reporter. Uh, this was a couple years ago, 2016, I believe. It was during the first round of the NCAA basketball tournament, you know, March Madness. And Baylor University, I don't know if you follow this, but you might recall that they got beat by Yale in the first round of the, of the tournament. That year. It was not supposed to happen, by the way. Huge upset. Now, you can imagine, you know, the players, obviously from Baylor, being very upset at the end of the game. And so during the press conference, which none of them wanted to be there, by the way, um, this reporter starts kind of hounding and pestering the players a little bit. One of the surprising statistics from that game was that Baylor, uh, Baylor got out-rebounded by Yale. Huge shocker. How does Yale out-rebound the mighty Baylor guys, the huge guys? And so this reporter couldn't get over that fact. And he says, how do you guys get out-rebounded by Yale? How does that happen? How does Baylor get out-rebounded by Yale? And he keeps 
pounding this in. I can't even describe the response. You're just going to have to watch it. This is one of my favorite. How did Baylor get out-rebounded by Yale? Hmm. How's that happen? Are you directing that towards anyone? Gentleman who just talked about getting out-rebounded. He, he had the stat sheet. Tori? Uh, Tori? said, how do... They yeah. have, they have you, more rebounds you, you said he got out-rebounded. I was surprised. You did. 36-32. How so, does Yale out-rebound Baylor? Um, you go up and grab the ball off the rim when it comes off. <laughs> and then you grab it with two hands. And you come down with it, and that's considered a rebound. So they got more of those than we did. <laughs> I love that. I love that. How does Yale out-rebound Baylor? Well, they go up and grab the ball off the rim. They hold it like this, and they come down with it, and that's called a rebound. They got more of those than we did. That's, how I lo- that's exactly how I would respond to a dumb question like that. That's exactly how I would respond. Well, I, I, I find these things humorous, and I'm going to enjoy watching them this week uh, at the Super Bowl. But do you realize that athletes aren't the only ones that get asked dumb questions? You may not have ever even thought about this before. But Jesus got asked several dumb questions during his ministry. They're recorded in the Bible. Now, you may not, they might not strike you as dumb. Maybe it's like, odd, that, that's a weird question. Or we might say, why would Jesus be asked this question? It, 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 it seems a little odd. I'll give you an example. Um, Mary and Martha were two sisters. They were the sisters of Lazarus. They were friends of Jesus. And Jesus and his disciples, they're visiting Mary and Martha. There's a lot of commotion in the house. It's a long story, but Martha was feeling left out. She was feeling like she got stuck doing all the work. Her sister Mary, she wasn't helping out at all. And, you know, if you've ever felt that way, like your family kind of abandoned you and you're stuck doing all the housework and the cooking and the cleaning, you've ever felt that way? So this is Martha. And she goes to Jesus and she confronts him on this situation. And she asks Jesus, Jesus, don't you care? That's what she asked him. Don't you care? She goes, don't you care that my sister has left me all alone to do all the work? Don't you care? And I find that just a really strange, even borderline dumb question. She's asking Jesus if he cares. This is Jesus whose entire ministry was based on his care and compassion for people. And she says, Jesus, don't you care? Of course he cares. I find that just a very odd, weird question. Jesus answered a lot of questions kind of like this that just kind of strike you as odd. Maybe you don't realize who you're talking to. I wonder how many times Jesus got asked a question and he just kind of had a deep sigh. (sighs) You wonder if Jesus ever got asked a question and he was like, oh, good Lord. (laughs) Think about that. Mark chapter 10 is uh, one of those places where he got asked one of these questions. In fact, if you got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to be today. Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to ask you to find your way to verse number 35, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. Because in this passage of Scripture, Jesus gets asked a question. You might call it dumb. You might call it uh, strange. You might call it weird. But anyway, it's just not a good question. And sadly, this question comes from two of Jesus' closest Friends, friends who you would think should know better not to ask a question like this. I mean, it's just, it's just an off question, but they still do. Yet at the same time, these disciples who ask this question, they've got plenty to learn, but so do we. Because their question reveals something very telling about the way many people, Christians especially, think today about where they stand and how they are aligned with God. 
So if you look at verse 35, let's just kind of dig into this a little bit. And this morning, we're just going to walk verse by verse down through this text from verse 35 to verse 45. Here, starting verse 35, this is how it starts. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So James and John, who are they? They are two of the 12 disciples. But in some ways, they're even more than that. They're very close friends with Jesus. When in the scripture, a lot of times you see James and John and Peter all kind of clumped together. So you have the 12 disciples, but the New Testament tends to make us think that Jesus kind of had an inner circle of three. James and John are part of this inner circle within the 12 disciples. So they come to Jesus and they start by saying, teacher, which is an appropriate way to address Jesus. It's a sign of respect. It says, you are the teacher. We are the followers. We know our place in this, in this whole thing. But they said, teacher, and Jesus says, or they said to Jesus first, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds just a little bit presumptuous, don't you think? I mean, that's my, that's my take on it. I wasn't there when it happened. But to me, the question itself sounds like maybe it's a little bit arrogant, maybe a, a rude, maybe borderline disrespectful. It's, it's hard to say, like I said. And this might be overstating it just a little bit, but it kind of sounds like James and John are like, we want something, Jesus, and you're gonna give it to us. At least that's kind of how it comes across. And what's, what's strange to me is that Jesus just goes right along with it. Look at the very next verse, verse 36. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? You know, I, I, one of the things I love about Jesus is that he already knew before they ever came to him what they were gonna ask. He already, he already knew this. How did, how did he already know what they were gonna ask for? It's because he's God. And the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus many times could read people's thoughts and he knew what they were gonna say. And we have examples of when somebody across the room was thinking something and Jesus went ahead and interjected himself in the conversation. It's like, I already know what you're thinking, so let me address this. There were times in their scriptures as Jesus knowing their thoughts. We already know that Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows their motivation. He knows what they're gonna ask, but he goes along with it anyway. I think at any point, Jesus could have just stepped his, all right, boys, let me just stop you right there. I already know what you're gonna ask, and let me just tell you, it ain't gonna happen, so just drop it. Jesus could have done that, but I find it surprising that he doesn't. He lets them get it out, He's gonna allow them this opportunity to explore their thought process, even though it's incorrect, and even though it's selfish what they're gonna ask for, even though it comes down to just a dumb question from, honestly, friends who probably should have known better, but we'll explore that. He lets them do this because I believe Jesus is going to let, wants them to explore the miscalculation of their thinking, which I think you're gonna see this clearly in just a moment. So he's like, you go ahead and ask your question. I got to wrestle with that this week. Why would Jesus allow them to just chase this rabbit that is wrong? Why would he let them do that? It's kind of weighed on me this week as I really kind of explored why he's gonna give them this, this opportunity to explore the miscalculation of their question. Yeah, I feel like God is really good at allowing us and allowing things that come into our lives to kind of ride their course because he wants to teach us something in that process. I mean, it seems like God at any point in our lives could easily step in and correct the miscalculation of our own thinking. 
We don't do everything perfect. We, we make mistakes. You know, we, we chase rabbits that are not godly from time to time. And sometimes it'd be nice, God, why don't you just step in and why don't you just correct that in the moment? Or we might say, God, I need an answer from you and I need the answer now. And God doesn't give you the answer right now because he wants you to explore the miscalculation of your thinking at times. I think we do this as parents sometimes. Have you ever watched your child wrestle with a decision? Or maybe there's something that's confusing to them, but as a parent, it's not confusing to you. Been there, done that. We, we know why this is going, but you allow that to ride out because as a parent, sometimes you know that the real lessons can be found in the pursuit of the right answer. Well, you can step in at any moment and fix it, but you don't. Sometimes I wonder if God's that way. And sometimes I wonder if maybe Jesus is doing this for the disciples. Oh, he could step in and stop this, this train of thought that's wrong, but maybe he just wants the disciples, this is what I would argue, he wants the disciples to explore this a little bit because in Jesus' mind, there is a bigger lesson at hand with the broader group of disciples and there's a bigger lesson for each and every one of us today. So Jesus goes with it and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Already knowing what they're gonna ask, he lets them ask it anyway. And when these disciples ask their question, they will lay bare their true motives. They're not gonna hold back. And the request shows us exactly where their heart was in this moment. Pretend with me for just a minute that you're down on your knees and you are praying to God and, and, and you're, you're talking to God and, and it's your daily time. But in this particular prayer time, God decides to answer you back in the moment in an audible voice. I've never had that experience but let's just say for this example, God answers you. You start praying and in his own audible voice, it's unmistakably God, it is him. And he says back to you, what do you want me to do for you? Now you follow me this, just pretend. God says, what do you want me to do for you? I, I'm not sure I could, I, could, I, I could handle that personally. Most people in the Bible that got to talk to God had a hard time handling the very presence of his voice. And God, I mean, this is the voice of God that caused all nations to shake. I mean, but let's just say, God actually said to you, what do you want me to do for you? My guess would be if God said that to you, you would probably change what you were about to pray for. You would have an awareness in that moment that what I'm about to pray for sounds pretty self-serving. And we don't say it like this, but don't a lot of our prayers pretty much boil down to, Lord, give me? Say, so God, give me more money. Now, I don't think we pray for that, but in a sense, in our prayers kind of lead that way, God, give me more things, more money. And if God said, what do we want me to do for you? I think we would stop short of asking for that and say, ooh, that sounds a little self-serving. I am talking to God here. God, give me a bigger house. God, give my kid that scholarship. God, give me that raise. God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me this, give me that. A lot of our prayers kind of, if you really think about it. So if God said, what do you want me to do for you? This is the exact scenario that James and John are experiencing with Jesus. God himself, what do you want me to do for you? And James and John pour it on and in doing so, it reveals their true motives. And you know what? If we pour it on to God in prayer and we really examine what we're asking for, it lays bare your, your true motives as well for why you're in praying. And it might be something that you become keenly aware of and it may not be good. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And James and John, they pour it on. Look at verse 37, here it is. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Whew. 
I'm just gonna say it. That is a horribly selfish, self-serving question. And it reveals their true motives. What was the desire of their heart? If you were to go back, you don't need to, but if you were to go back to Matthew's gospel, um, Matthew records the exact same incident in his gospel. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the story of Christ. Now, all the gospel writers, they add different details. They all harmonize beautifully, but sometimes you have gospel writers tell the same story. This is the situation we have here with this, this, this question. Matthew writes about the same thing. You read Matthew's account, we learn a few extra details. One is that not only did James and John wanna know this, but their mother was right there by their side asking Jesus the same thing. Matthew's gospel kind of makes it sound like it was their mom's idea and she put them up to it. But either way, the three of them are asking Jesus. They're saying, let us have the best seats. And the mom's saying, give my boys the best seats. This question that they ask, it shows us that these disciples, even though they had been with Jesus for a couple years, even though they had traveled with him, they'd seen many amazing things, miraculous things, they are still trying to figure things out. And in that way, they are no different than any of us in this room today. Sometimes when we think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all these names and these uh, people in the Bible, we sometimes think that they're as perfect as Jesus, and they are far from perfect. If anything, this example right here tells me, James and John, just like me and you, we're walking with Jesus. We're doing our best to do that. But you know what? To our best abilities, there's times we don't have it all figured out. There's things that our thinking gets messed up on. We chase rabbits that aren't, aren't godly. There's things that happen. This is a good example of this. They're not perfect. We're not perfect either. In fact, these disciples in this moment, they are still trying to wrap their minds around the truth that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. They don't have 2,000 years of church history. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't come on. The church isn't here yet. They're wrapping their minds around this truth and their faith that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And how does that play out on a practical level in our lives? Friends, they're not that different from us. How do I walk daily with Jesus and how do I live this out every day of my life? So what did they want? They wanted, what did they want Jesus to do for them? They wanted the best seats in heaven. That's really what it boils down to. We want the best seats. We want the place of honor. They're basically saying, Jesus, in heaven, we want the box seats with the buffet. That's what we want in heaven. They want all of heaven to look at where they're sitting and say, there are two really good dudes. Those are Jesus' guys. That's what they wanted in heaven. I wonder how many times we go to the Lord in prayer and we do so thinking that we're really holy. But in reality, all we're really asking God for is the best seats and to be honored on earth. We're asking for comfort and ease. We're asking for all the rewards of heaven without any of the sacrifice on earth or holy living. I wonder if our prayers really sound more like that from time to time because our prayers reveal our true motives. It lays bare our true hearts. Why would Jesus' disciples ask this question? It seems strange to us, it seems foreign, it seems weird, it seems selfish, it is those things, but why would they ask? This is where having some context, um, when I say context, I mean 
read the chapter before you get to this part in the Bible and understand what is happening in this particular moment. You're gonna, if you do that, you're gonna find that Jesus has been traveling in Mark chapter nine and Mark chapter 10. He's been traveling with his disciples and they are on their way to Jerusalem. And in the context of scripture, this is right before the final week of Jesus's life. So, so this is right here towards the end. Jesus doesn't have much time left. In just a few short days, he will begin the final week of his life, the triumphal entry and all the things that happened during the last week of his life. They are walking to Jerusalem and they're talking and along the way. Along the way to Jerusalem, Jesus shares this bomb-dropping news, shocking news. He says, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over. I'm gonna be sentenced to die by the chief priests and the religious leaders. They're gonna hand me over to the Romans and the Romans are gonna spit on me, they're gonna flog me, they're gonna kill me and then I'm gonna rise back to life. This is their conversation on the way. This is the context. In fact, if you've got Mark chapter 10 open on your lap, you can just back up from verse 35, just a couple verses and you can read that conversation that I just told you right now. This is, their, this is the context. Collectively in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is now the third time that Jesus predicted his death, that he would die. But in this particular chapter, Jesus says, this is all gonna happen in Jerusalem. And guess where they're going? Jerusalem. This is heavy on their hearts. Jesus just drops his bomb. Hey, we're going there, and I'm gonna die. We're going, but I'm not coming out. This is where we're, we're going we also learn from Matthew's account of this exact same incident that Jesus also had another conversation, or this is part of the same conversation. Mark doesn't record it, Matthew does, but he talks about this. And just look at the screens behind me. Jesus said, this, all of this in the same conversation. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we're not gonna get into what all that means today, but this is what's fresh on the disciples' minds at this time. These are some of the things that led up to this selfish question from James and John. I'm gonna die, but I promise you, there's glory waiting, there's victory, and Jesus says, I'm gonna sit on my throne, and there's gonna be some other thrones, you're gonna be sitting around me, did they think that this was all gonna happen in a few days? We're gonna go to Jerusalem, Jesus is gonna be crowned king, and then all of a sudden we're gonna have thrones, we're gonna be rulers over the earth. It's hard to say exactly what their frame of mind was and exactly what they understood Jesus to be saying. But the entire conversation of Jesus' death, his resurrection, sitting on thrones, ruling over, it, it caused James and John and their mom to say, hey, when that happens, where are we all gonna sit? Where are we all gonna sit? It wasn't like, oh, praise Jesus, we win in the end, we get to be with the Lord forever. It wasn't that, it was like, no, no, no. Where, where are we gonna sit? Because you know, seating arrangement's important, you know. Where are we gonna sit? True motives begin to be laid bare. What was the big deal about seating assignments? Why did they want the right and the left? Well, in Jewish thought at this time, how they would have understood it in their day is that when the king sits on his throne, there were prominent seats around him. And we read this in scripture and we know this through history that the person who sits directly to the right of the king's throne, that is like the most important guy after the king. I don't know if that's where we got the phrase right-hand man or not, but in this culture, they would have understood the guy sitting to the king's right, that's the number one dude. 
and the second person would be the one on his left. So the top two people in the king's kingdom would be those sitting on his right and those sitting on his left. And that is the nature of their question. We want to be number one and number two. Now, I don't know how James and John, being brothers, how they would have fought over one and two. I don't know. But that's what they wanted. And so here's how Jesus responds to the request for number one and number two in heaven. Verse 38, he says, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Now, this is just me, but I don't sense that Jesus is giving them a very strong rebuke for their question. I've seen Jesus give, in Scripture, harsh rebukes. This doesn't sound like one. It sounds more like a, oh, good Lord, here we go, response. Jesus just said, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're doing. Ironically, it's the very same thing Jesus said to the people who were nailing him to a cross. Lord, forgive them. They don't, they don't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't know what they were asking for. This, this response to them, this, this whole line of thinking, it clearly shows that they haven't counted all the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Can you drink the cup I'm gonna drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm gonna get baptized with? That's his response. Now we're not gonna, you know, just really for the sake of time, I just want you to know that when Jesus said that, my cup, my baptism, can you do it? All he's really saying is, are you willing to suffer and die and walk the same path I'm walking? If I can just cut to the chase, that's all he's asking him. Are you ready to go to the cross too? I just told you I'm gonna die. Are you willing to die with me? The things that I've predicted, are you willing to do that? And, and, uh, and the, the response is funny in verse 39. What do they say? Uh, yes, we can. Absolutely. I, I love their confidence. I love their enthusiasm. Yes, we can. We can drink from that cup. Oh, we, can, we can be fully immersed in this direction. You absolutely, we can do it. And Jesus sees their heart, but he also knows, because he knows everything, that in a few days, they're not gonna be with him. Not even Peter, who many argue was the greatest disciple that Jesus had, not even Peter was ready to drink that cup or to do that. Remember, Jesus gets arrested and just a few short hours after that, a little girl comes up to Peter and says, hey, you were with Jesus. And what did Peter say? Uh-uh, not me. Three times. Roo, roo, roo. The rooster goes. That's what roosters sound like, right? And my voice kind of cracked right there, so I didn't get the full rooster sound. So anyway, that, not even Peter. Not even Peter. Certainly not James and John. We're ready to drink that cup and to be fully immersed in what Jesus was about to do. Verse 39, Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared this is Jesus acknowledging that James and John will indeed absolutely walk this path and drink this cup. It's just not gonna be today. We know that in Acts chapter 12, James is martyred for his faith. He drank it. He was immersed in it, you bet. John, we know that he was the only one of Jesus' disciples that was not martyred for his faith, but many have argued he'd suffered greater than the rest with his long life seeing all of his friends die, and during all the persecution of the church, even at the very end of his life, he was exiled to an island for his faith in Jesus. Oh yeah, they would drink the cup. They would be immersed in all the things that Jesus was. They just, 
weren't ready yet. So they wanted seat number one and seat number two and Jesus tells them, no, I'm not granting this request. It's not even mine to grant. Jesus knew that this question was a clear indication that they were not yet aligned with God's ultimate plan. Great guys, you bet they were. Sincere, sure, of course they were. Dedicated, absolutely. But yet not completely aligned with God's plan. As you can imagine, the rest of the disciples, they weren't too happy with James and John for this request. If you look at the very next verse, verse 41, it says this, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now I thought about that, why were the disciples so mad? I think the disciples were mad at James and John, not because they asked the question, but because they beat them to the punch. I think the other disciples, they wanted that for themselves. And have you ever really wanted something bad and you thought you were the front of the line and, and actually somebody else beat you to it? I think that's why they were a little bit bothered with James and John. The reason I draw that conclusion is because this is not the first time that Jesus' disciples have squabbled over who the best disciple was. In fact, if you were just to go back one chapter in Mark uh, chapter nine, around verse 33, you're gonna see that the disciples were fighting amongst themselves over who was the greatest of all the disciples. Isn't that a funny thing to fight for? Why was that so important to them? Well, they're coming from a society where rank is everything, you know? It'd be like those of us here in this room that we had an argument and a fight over who was the greatest Christian in this room. That's exactly what they were arguing about. I think that's why they're upset with James and John. I was gonna ask that, and you beat me to it. Well, Jesus, I think knowing that all of the disciples were really thinking and feeling the same thing, even though it came through James and John, I think this is indicative of what all the disciples were feeling. Jesus pulls them together, and he sees this as an opportunity to teach them a very important lesson on aligning themselves with God's vision. So why did God allow them to explore the miscalculation of their thinking? It's because I think Jesus knew, I'm gonna talk to all of you about what's really important. If you look at the next verse, verse 42, this is that lesson. This is the lesson that Jesus teaches disciples and it is a lesson very much for you and I in this room today. Jesus called them together, verse 42, and he said this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. I believe that this is Jesus saying to them, you guys know where wealth and power end up a lot of times, don't you? Look, at, look around us. People abuse this. They lord it over. They love their positions of authority. And then he says in verse 43, not so with you. That's not what this is about. Not so with you. And then Jesus says instead, whoever wants to become great among you must first be your servant. This is so unlike the way they were thinking. I'm gonna be the greatest. And Jesus like, you wanna be the greatest? You better start serving. The greatest are those that are servants first. And then he says, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus looks at his 12 disciples and he sees misalignment in them. I think he sees it in all of them and that's why he allowed this thing to play out the way it did with James and John. 
And here's where the disciples were misaligned. This is where they're missing the mark. And this honestly is where you and I tend to miss the mark as well by not being completely aligned with God. We want to be great. We don't have in mind the same things that the Lord has in mind. Last week we talked about this truth and hopefully you recall that you'll never be good enough on your own to go to heaven. And we looked at the story of the rich young ruler. He said, what good thing must I do to go to heaven? And Jesus responds, why are you asking about what is good? There's only one who is good. Everything else fails in comparison to the one who is good. It's not about being good. It's about receiving and accepting God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's a gift of God. It's not of yourself. There's nothing you can do to do it. He tells them, look, you're saved not by the good things you do. You're saved by the one good thing that God did for you on, on the cross through Jesus. This right there, this is the reality that Jesus desperately wants his disciples to capture here in Mark chapter 10. So I'm gonna go do something for you, basically is what Jesus is saying. I'm gonna go do something that is gonna be so significant it's gonna happen in Jerusalem and I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna die for the sins of the world. This is so much bigger than what you guys are thinking. You're worried about thrones and, and authority and I'm about to do something that's gonna change the entire world. Jesus says, I'm gonna give my life, and this is his word, as a ransom. How would they have understood ransom in this day? The meaning of ransom back in this first century time was that when you pay a bail to get somebody out of jail or you give something so sacrificial that it releases a prisoner of war, it really holds this idea that I'm gonna give and pour out so much to the sole benefit of somebody else. This is at the heart of it. Jesus is saying, look, I am about to pour myself out. I'm about to give it all so that the world can be ransomed freed from their sin. They can't get out on their own. I gotta do this for them. How completely different is Jesus' words and his actions and what he's about to do? How completely different is that when you compare it to James and John's question about who's the greatest and where do we sit? It's radically different. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That is drastically different than where his disciples' heads were at. And that's where you have this misalignment. James and John, the other disciples, had visions of being these great leaders and lords over people to be honored and have people look at them and say, man, look how great they are. Jesus knows this will ruin them. So he says, back to verse 43, not so with you. That, that's not what I want. Whoever wants to become great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first has got to be a slave. True alignment with God is when we 100% identify with Jesus being a servant. Being a servant. Week one, we talked about together that when God is in the right place, everything tends to be in the right place too until he's not. 
There's things that come along in our lives and knock us out of alignment with God. And this kind of, I think, walking with God is a constant pursuit of staying lined up with his vision, his purposes. It doesn't mean you're not a great guy, no great gal. It doesn't mean you're not striving your best to walk with Jesus, but it's about alignment. Do I think the same way Jesus thinks? Do I behave the same way that Jesus wants me to behave? This is alignment. We know, we know from scripture, we'll never be good enough to earn the thing that God gave us. We just accept it through Jesus Christ, but we want to stay in alignment. And there's a clear lesson here. Alignment with God is when we jump on board with Jesus' vision for the lost in this world. And fulfilling that in our lives really is not about, hey, look how great I can be or the things I can achieve and do. It's really about being a servant, aligning with him. Uh, I'll end with this. Perhaps maybe the best statements on alignment with God came from the Apostle Paul when he was addressing the Christians in the city of Philippi, he said this in Philippians chapter two, verse five through eight, he says, in your relationships with one another. Okay, so it's like, all right, this, in those relationships, have the same mindset as Jesus. You see, these disciples, they they didn't have the same mindset as Jesus. Jesus was going to pour himself out and to do something significant for the whole world. And the disciples were like, what can I get out of this? That's the misalignment. That's where we are too sometimes, friends. What can I get out of this relationship? What can I get out of this church? What can this church do for me? What do I get out of this deal? And that's indicative of a misalignment with the will of God. Paul Paul says this, the same mindset of Christ, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He's talking about the Lord. He was everything in heaven, all powerful, all knowing, creator God. And he steps out of that environment to walk among this restrictive, sin-filled place called earth. Being made in human likeness, that's the incarnation, God in the flesh. And being found in the appearance of a man He humbled himself. Do you understand how humbling that would be? He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what God wants from us is to align with that movement. As the Lord showed massive humility and a servant heart towards us, that's how the Lord wants us to return that to others. And that's alignment. Alignment. It's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? 